This is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so you and I can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. We don't want to approach the Scriptures with a confirmation bias or trying to find something that backs up what we believe. Nothing wrong with doing that. However, we want to believe what the Bible says, and so we want to look to the scriptures to find out what we can say. Now again, this is our Q&A. If you have questions about the Bible or prophecy or a former teaching that we've had, we would love to answer those questions with you. Good to see you guys here as you're logging on. Our first question is a continuation of a question that we had last week. We were asked whether or not a passage out of Isaiah could be applied to us. And it's a passage that says specifically, O Israel. It's directly to Israel. So the context of the passage is to Israel. A little bit later on in the comment section, somebody said, what a drag. So many verses have been lost because of the context. And I would say, I don't think so. So I wanted us to look at Jeremiah 29, 11, written to Israel, when they were in captivity in Babylon, and God wanted to encourage them. And so God says, uh, God said to them, let me look it up here, Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, okay, so I, okay, God said to them, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for you to prosper and to give you a future and a hope. Now, there are often people who will point out, if you quote this verse to someone, they'll point out, and I can tell you as a pastor, when you get feedback, that people will say, you misquoted that verse, that verse isn't for Christians. And so, as a pastor, you become very aware of the context and when you're quoting it. However, I said last week, if you can rebuild the verse, then it can be applied to you as well. In other words, if someone's going through a difficult and a tough time, and someone says to them, God said, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for you to succeed, to have a future and a hope. And someone says, well, that's not for them, instead of encouraging them. And this is the kind of thing that happens. So does God know the plans that he has for you? The Bible says that we are God's workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. So God knows the exact plans that he has for us. He has made them for us and created us to be able to fulfill them, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. Does he want us to prosper? Well, Psalms 1, which is written in general, not just written to, to Israel, but really written to everyone. Psalms 1 talks about meditating on the word of God day and night, and you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and whatever you do will prosper. Now, I realize that people massively misuse that passage, that they'll say, God, when God wants you to prosper, that means God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have a super nice car and a super nice house, and they massively misuse it. The Bible says that God often disciplines us or takes us through struggles, that our faith can become tested much more precious than gold. But there is a genuine, real prospering to where I can say to a brother and sister who's hurting, God wants to give you a future and a hope and God wants you to prosper. And it would be biblical, you can rebuild it. And then that God wants to give you a future and a hope. God wants to give you a future, wants to give you eternity. And we have hope in Christ. What would we be if we didn't have hope in Christ? So you can rebuild that passage to be applied to any believer. 
And so sometimes I think there are people that get too nitpicky. Uh, it's almost like, you know, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. Well, I know who that verse applies to, and that verse doesn't apply to you. And someone in a moment of distress that needs to be encouraged, here's something, a verse, or somebody gives them a verse, or a card with a verse on it, or a coffee cup with a verse on it, and they're encouraged in the moment. The last thing that we want to do is discourage them. Now, there are passages to Israel that don't apply to us. For example, the Bible says that if you don't keep the law, then there will be all kinds of curses that will happen to you. You and I are no longer under the law. And so those verses don't apply to us. And praise God, they don't apply to us. On the other side, it said that if you keep the law, then nothing bad would ever happen to you. One of these passages is Psalms 103. I'm going to put that on the screen for you. Here, Psalms 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul and all that is written within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquities and heals all of your diseases. Now, people try to apply that to Christians today and say there's the promise that God's going to heal all of your diseases. And if you're not healed, then you don't have enough faith. When Paul himself had an infirmity, he calls it, he rejoices in his infirmities. He told the Galatians, you would have taken out your eyes and given them to me, probably because he had an eye disease. He told the Galatians, I write this letter to you with such great letters. So using that verse, yes, you know what? You can rebuild it for Christians because you will heal all of our diseases. Because in heaven, there will be no more blind nor lame. There will be no, every, every disease will be healed in heaven but not here on earth, and it's misused in that way. And so there are times when you want to say, that verse, you need to read it in context. It's not a promise to you. But for the most part, when we're talking about a verse that says um, something like, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for you to prosper, to succeed, have a future and a hope, we should just let it go. It might not be directly to them, but there's enough promises in God's word that make it to them. And for whoever may be discouraged that certain passages no longer apply and what a bummer that is, hey, don't be bummed out about that. Rejoice that we know context. And let's get used to reading things in context because that's going to save us from being sucked into a false teaching if we know what the Bible says. Listen, I can take one verse and I can make that verse say anything I want it to say. I can make one verse say a heresy. We saw that when we were looking at the book of James, where James is making the point that works are a manifestation or works are a sign that you have been saved by faith. And he even says in that passage that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But then he says, but he was saved by works. And he's making, the, he's making a point and it's in context. But I can use that to say you're saved by works. Therefore, you better get out there and start working for God. Because if you don't do anything for God, then you're not saved. No, works are a sign that we're saved. And when you read it in context, you see it. And there's so many other verses that are like that, that say something different when you just read the verse. But when you dive in and you look at it in context, then you see that it says something that is entirely different. Uh, we like to say context is king or context, context, context. It's all about context. And as a Bible teacher, as a Christian who wants to study and know exactly what the Word of God is saying and not be misled by it, context becomes everything, and we should rejoice. 
that we have the ability to be able to know those things, to be able to understand the context. We have more now when it comes to manuscripts and ancient writings and early church fathers and what they thought and wrote about doctrines that we do understand more now uh, than what we ever have before. So good to see you guys. I got my counter fixed, by the way. And um, uh, if you have a question, then you can write the word question or put a Q in front of it and then go ahead and write out your question and we'll bring them in in, uh, uh, in the order that we get them. A one question per person, please. We will, um, if we run out of questions, we'll come back and pick up your question or we'll try to use it for a future Q&A. All right, so the first question comes from fact check these hands. It is prohibited scripturally for a woman to practice street preaching. Or is it prohibited scripturally for a woman to practice street preaching? I'm leaning towards it being permissible because they're not an authority or over a congregation. Thoughts? Yeah, I think that where, you know, where Paul says, I have not a woman to teach, um, that's very specific or to have authority over a man. And that word authority is a, is, a, is a word for authority that you wouldn't even want a man to have authority. The passage out of 2 Timothy, um, and I'm really looking forward, I think Mike Winger was, was gonna cover this passage in his Women in Ministry series. And if you're interested in more of this, I would suggest his Women in Ministry series is really good. But there are a lot of things that women have been told that they can do, uh, even though they are gifted to be able to do it, that I think are a real problem, and uh, street preaching would be would be one of them. I would agree with you. Um, if you are out, if you're out telling people about Christ, and if you've got an opportunity, a platform, to be able to share the gospel of Jesus, who's to say that a woman can't do that? Never says that a woman can't preach the gospel. Uh, is she, in that point, an authority over men? And by the way, that, like I said, that word authority is questionable. Uh, is she in the role of a pastor? I, I don't think so. And I think, it's, I think it is problematic to have a woman who is teaching from the pulpit. However, could a woman speak? What if, what if um, there was a woman who was going to come and share with your church on a, a situation she'd been through and some biblical things she learned from it? And so she shares. Or let's say that she wrote a book. And she gets up and talks about the things that she, she, she writes about in the book. Is she then taking the role of a pastor or a teacher? I don't think so. I think that that's permissible. And I think street preaching would be permissible. We want to be careful that we follow what the Word of God says. And the Bible talks about roles for men and roles for women. And that, that in ministry, a woman needs to be under the authority of, of a man who's in authority. <laughs> Not just any man but a man who meets all the other qualifications to be an authority, that she would be under that authority. Um, and um, again, this has been greatly misused. It's been, it has been used in misogynistic ways where men are just like, you gotta do what I say. You know, I'm a I'm, man, I'm an authority. But have you met all the other qualifications for this woman to be in submission to you, according to what the scriptures say? And a lot of times, I don't think that that's the case. But, um, we are, at Calvary, Calvary Chapel, complementarian. We are not egalitarian. Egalitarian would believe that the roles of men and women are the same. It comes from the word equal. We, in, in complementarianism, believe that women are equal, but there's different roles. And, hey, you can have a general and a colonel. The general might be a much worse person than the colonel. 
The colonel by human standards might be a much better person. Holding the rank doesn't mean anything. It doesn't talk about equality at all. The colonel could be, be more talented in leadership than the general, but the general still holds the position of authority. So we're not saying that anyone is not equal, and that's really important. And, and I think an important part in understanding this is the Bible says that the, the son did not consider a robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself and became a man, and he subjected himself to the Father. So in the Godhead, where there's total equality, Jesus subjected himself to the Father while he came to earth. Did it make Jesus somehow less than the Father? Not, not in any way, shape, or form. They were still the same. They were one, and they were equal. So, no, I do not fact-check these hands. Believe you are prohibited from sharing Christ with an individual or with a group of people. Um, I don't even think you're prohibited from speaking. Now, when you are preaching, let's open up our Bibles. We're in a service now. We're gathered together. We're going to be going over the Apostles' Doctrine together. Then I don't think that there's any problem with that. And as far as a as a church uh, that wants to lord over women and not allow them to do anything. All right. So thanks a lot. Fact check these hands. I appreciate your question. You can have a follow-up if uh, there's anything else that you have. All right. So um, we have a question from Psych Man. Psych Man says, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Do you see the 5T guy like David? The 5T guy. Oh, the five talent guy like David. Okay. Uh, refusing to give to God that which cost him nothing. And the one T guy, like Cain, offering God a couple plums or whatever. Thanks, dude. Thank you, dude. I appreciate it, psych man. Um, Matthew 25, 14. Let's just go there and, and consider this for a minute. Matthew 25, 14. So these are servants, right? Um, this is the parable of the talents. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered the goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to the other two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two talents uh, gained two more also. But he who received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. So the two went out and did what God had called them to do to be able to work with it. The other one went out and buried it. Okay. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five talents. Besides them, the Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. So he was good and he was faithful because he took what God had given him and he didn't bury it, but he went out and used it. You were faithful over a few things. Now, uh, then he says, I will make you rule over many things. You're faithful in a few, I'm going to make you rule over many. There's going to be rewards because you are faithful with what I've given you. And this is a principle. Don't despise the days of small things because God will use those to test us and give us more things. He also who had received two talents came to the Lord, said, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. And the Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, be faithful. Uh, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Again, there was a reward because he was faithful over a few. 
he was given a reward for any enter into the joy of the Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I know you are a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. And I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I would not sown and gather where I have not scattered. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have come and received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, but to him who will not have abundance from, um, and he will have abundance, but to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that unprofitable servant into the utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it certainly seems, psych man, like not using the talent would even, even might have something to do with salvation. But in your question, David was a five-talent guy who made five talent, talents more? Sure. Um, Two-talent guy like Cain? Like Cain. Okay, uh, oh, um, refusing to, um, let's see, I like David, refusing to give God that which cost him nothing. The one talent guy like Cain offered God a couple um, plums or whatever. Uh, thanks. Um, sh sure, I think you could use that as an analogy. Um, David said, I won't give God something that doesn't cost me anything. The The, the main teaching of that is, hey, take what God's given you and use it. And don't be lazy because he was lazy. I think it was just an excuse that I was afraid, so I hid it. So we don't want to be lazy. So Joe has a question. Joe comes from Facebook. This is going to take over up a lot of space here. Facebook is, allows you a longer questions. Let me see if I can get this a little bit more manageable here. All right, question. When we invite Christ into our lives, we are given the Holy Spirit. When do we continue to ask God, um, or why do we continue to ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit if we have already received? All right, and you got another question about Deuteronomy 18, uh, 15 and 18. Okay, let me see um, if, it's, if it's connected. Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18 verses basically talk about God's providing a prophet to come which is believed to be referring to Jesus. When reading this struck my, my, me, my curiosity, if this is the case, why God didn't just say it was going to be his son, let everyone know. And then question number three. Um, all right, so, uh, so um, Joe, um, let's just go ahead and take one of your questions, all right? And if we have time, we'll come back and get them. So I'm gonna start with the first question. We receive the Holy Spirit when we are born again. He seals us. We are baptized into the family of God by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. And no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So those three verses tell us we receive the Holy Spirit when we're born again. However, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John had been warned not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, they pray and the room that they are in is shaken, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So how come they receive the Holy Spirit another time? The day of Pentecost has already, has already passed. How come they receive it again here in Acts chapter 4? I'm going to see if I can get to 
to their prayer. Let me just bring this up for you here. Let me see. Um, let me go to this. I'm going to go. Yeah, we'll go here. See what, yeah, okay, there we go. All right, so this is a prayer for boldness. And, and being let go, they went up to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they heard this, they raised their voice to God in one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth stand, the rulers gathered together against the Lord, quoting Psalms 2, and his Christ. For truly against your holy servants, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and purpose determined before to be done. Now look on their threats and grant your servants that we with all boldness may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your name, through the name of your servant, Jesus Christ. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. And so there we go. We have the Holy Spirit filling them after they had already received the Holy Spirit. And this is something you're going to find again and again throughout the book of Acts. They are the, the filling of the Holy Spirit is the empowering. Jesus said to the disciples, stay in Acts 1.8, stay in Jerusalem and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The word for power there, Joe, uh, is the word is can also be martyr, to be my witness or my martyr. It can also be, it can be both of those but they will receive power and then the Holy Spirit came upon them and then they received more power to do the work that God called them to do. So there's a filling and there's a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. All right. And um, Joe, we, we just right now, because things have gotten so busy, we're only taking one question. I'll come back and I'll take a look at your other two questions and look at either using them as a first in one of our Q&As to come. Or, um, you know, maybe, um, or at another Q&A. All right. So, um, we have another question from Michelle. Michelle said, um, hello, Pastor Robert. I've been having trouble finding a good church. It seems as though one church has one view on the Bible, while another one has a different view about the same verses. How do I know? Um, thanks, Michelle, for, for writing this. Um, here's what I believe that you need to do. You need to be a part of a local fellowship. I don't know where you're at, Michelle. I don't know how big the town is. But I assume you're going to be able to find a genuine church with genuine believers. Will they be doing everything correct? Probably not. There's no church that does everything correct except for Calvary Chapel, Tucson. <laughs> and that's a joke, okay? Uh, no, there's, there, there's not going to be a church that does everything right. But you've got to find one that doesn't have blatant heresies. You want to find one that believes the basic things about Jesus. And so the way that you're going to find a good church um, to, to start with is to go to their webpage and look at what they believe. Look under what they believe and see if they give good, solid, historical, biblical 
We believe in God the Father. We believe in the Son, born of a virgin, crucified under Pontius Pilate, risen from the dead. Um, and you can kind of look over, if you go on ours, ours is very detailed and very lengthy. Not all churches do them really long and lengthy, but you can get an idea. And then you need to support the church, even though it might not be perfect, even though there's things that might not be perfect. Because we're not called to go to a perfect church. We just want to be part of the church. And so I hope that's helpful. There may be qualifiers there, Michelle. Maybe you only got two or three churches to choose from and none of them are good. I don't know. But I assume you're, you're going to be able to find a good Bible-believing church. Will it be preaching you like? Maybe not. Will it be music you like? Maybe not. But they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what's important. And you're learning the Word of God from someone who was called by God to be a pastor in that particular area. All right? Hopefully that's helpful. Michelle, I understand how difficult it can be. And I don't take choosing a church or changing churches lightly. I chose, we chose, um, when I came back to the Lord, we were in one church, a really wild, charismatic church. The Lord led us to a Pentecostal church, which was much more solid. They still had some problems with the way the gifts were being used. And my youth pastor, well, it wasn't my youth pastor anymore, but who had been my youth pastor, had said to me, why didn't you go to Calvary Chapel? And we left and went to Calvary Chapel, but my wife was the taught uh, the five-year-olds, and I had taught junior high. And um, we had been at that church for a while, even though not everything was perfect. But there came a point where it just became obvious that we needed to find another church. And Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque was that church. And of course, God's plan that I would become a pastor of a Calvary Chapel eventually. All right. So thank you, um, Michelle. We appreciate that. Uh, if you have a follow-up on that, you want to give me more information, I would love to do. I would love to hear that if I, that can help you out more. Prayerfully make a decision. Get as much information as you can. M make sure it's not a progressive church. Make sure it's not a Word of Faith church. Make sure it's not a church that may be, you know, um, some cultish-like church. So, so look for those things first of all. Maybe if you could find a believer in the town that you really trust, you could ask them and then prayerfully make a good decision. And I believe you'll be able to find the right place to be a part at that church. Okay? Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate it. Uh, we have a question from uh, Empress Kimberly. I, Pastor, was told in a study that there is no original sin that passed from Adam and no sin nature, that babies are born pure. They use Exodus 18. Is this true? Um, do you know where Ezekiel 18? Do you know where in Ezekiel 18 that the verse is that they were using? All right. Can you add that in? Put the word question in front of it again or follow up, would you, Kimberly? Put follow up in and then put um, where in Exodus 18 that's at. <coughs> Excuse me, Ezekiel 18, where that's at. And um, I'll take a look at it. No, it is not true. I want to take a look at that verse and see how they're applying it. So put a follow-up with that, the actual verse in it, not just that. But no, it is not true. Um, we are born with a sin nature. Um, there's a battle going on with in, within Calvinism. I used to say that I was a two-point Calvinist because I lean towards perseverance of the saints and I believed in total depravity. But I don't believe in total depravity the way that they do. So when I believe in total depravity, I believe that I am born in sin, I am prone to sin, 
I have my flesh that battles against my spirit. It's a constant battle that continues on. If anyone says they don't sin, they're a liar. So, yeah, we're born. Um, all of us are born prone to go astray. The Calvinists will believe that you are dead and cannot respond. That God has to give you some kind of a an extra grace to bring you to life so you can respond. So, I do not believe in total depravity the way that a Calvinist believes in total depravity. I believe God has already given light to men, given the creation as an example, has shown in man's heart that he already exists, has given us everything we need for us to respond positively and that I can respond positively even though I can't say myself, even though I've got to be drawn by God. Even on my own, I can do nothing. I can't jump high enough to get saved, do enough works to get saved. I can't do any of that. But I can respond to the light that God gives and to the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached. And I can give my life to Jesus and begin to live for him. So, um, we are born into sin nature. That doesn't make a baby um, a viper in diapers, which I think is a R.C. Sprawl quote, I think. You know, it, it doesn't make us just ultimately all horrible but it does mean that we don't have what it takes to be saved. Or we don't have what it takes. We, we are not saved and we have a sin nature. And when we get the gospel, we do have what it takes to respond to the gospel in order to be saved. So if you can put that reference in a little bit later on, um, Kimberly, I will take a look at that. All right. So um, let's see. I think I... Did I miss a couple other ones here? Let me go back and look. Um, yeah, having trouble finding a good church. Paul, let me let me look here, Paul. Paul says, um, question, Paul McGuire, good to see you. Uh, do you have, do you think Diotrophus in 3 John was saved? He's a man that believed in Jesus, but was John's enemy. He maliciously slandered John. Diotrophus was an evil brother. Hmm. So John in 3 John. 3 John only has one chapter, right? Um, I, I would really love to have more of the um, more of where uh, the, the actual reference so that we can actually go and look it up. Um, I want to see alright, here we go. This is in verse 9. Let me put this up on the screen. So, this is 3 John, which has one chapter, verse 9. I wrote to your church. I, I wrote to the church, but Diotrophus, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pertaining against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. But uh, who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony. Okay, so um, here's what I think, Paul. Let me get back to you. Here's what I think, Paul. I think um, that Diotrophus was not a believer. So I think you, you go on to what he says there when he says, if you do what is good, but if you do what is evil, if you imitate what is evil, then you're, then you're evil. I think that that is 
um, a reference. Um, let me read this again. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is, is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. So I think Diotrophus had not seen God. He was a, he was a, a leader in the church, rejecting people, and he was power hungry. And just because someone's a pastor doesn't mean they're a believer. And, and they can be power hungry and cause these kind of problems that um, Diotrophus was causing to the church there in 3 John. All right? Um, if he is a believer, yeah, he's a bad believer. <laughs> Not a good one. But I don't think that he is. All right? So thank you very much, Paul, for your question. I appreciate that. It's good to see you guys here. Um, uh, let's see. All right. Um, I'm in the South where there are a bunch of Church of Christ folks. They believe this, uh, but I absolutely do not. <clears throat> they tend to take verses out of context. I take it, fact check these hands, you're talking about baptismal regeneration, probably. Um, if not, I'm buttoning in on a conversation in the middle of it. <clears throat> we have a question from Pokey. Pokey, good to see you. Good to have you here. Um, what's going to happen to uh, happen or even replace um, Erdogan and Putin who are now in um, Erdogan and Putin are now in serious health conditions and may be dying as the report as, as some reports say. So that's um, the leader of Syria and Russia, right? Um, I don't know. I don't I don't, we don't even know that either one of them are spoken of in scriptures at all. So there's just no way that I can know what's happening to political leaders or what's going to happen to them or what's, who's going to replace them. Um, you know, I mean, Syria obviously is talked about in the Bible. We think Russia is, but we're not completely sure. There are certainly scholars that think that we've got the identification of Russia wrong. So that, you know, might be the case. Um, but yeah, there's no way that I can tell you what's going to happen once these guys die. Because think about how we have 2,000 years of history. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We could be very near the end or we could be a couple hundred years away, which would still be near the end. So we just don't know. Uh, we have another question from... Uh, Talon? Talon says, um, does God define, I'm going to make this a little bit bigger here. Does God define man, woman, and eunuch? How does a eunuch potentially differ from a person who is transgender? All right, Talon, let me see if I can go ahead and tackle your question. I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. You might try to clarify it by my answer. Let me answer and then see if we can clarify it. Um, God defines men and women. Uh, God created man and God created women. In the New Testament, God has a role for a man and a role for a woman. In Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have the whole head covering issues where women were told that they were to be an authority to their husbands by having their head coverings on. The Old Testament says that if a man dresses like a woman or a woman like a man, that it is an abomination to God. Uh, in the New Testament, it said it's a shame for a man to have long hair 
And really the idea there is to look feminine. And so to say that our gender, for me to all of a sudden say I feel more feminine is would be would be wrong and to start dressing more feminine would be wrong. Now, we understand that there's a spectrum out there and that there are men who feel and act more feminine and men who feel and act more masculine and women who feel and act more masculine and women who feel and act more feminine. And there's this curve that's out there and we understand that. And God knows in creating mankind that there would be those who men who would be more more feminine on the male side of it. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the whole transgender issue, which is to deny what God has made you. So you're saying God God made a mistake. I'm not a man. Now we do know that there are rare cases where there are XY chromosomes or XX chromosomes and where there are those that that have to have some surgery because they, whether they're male or female is in question. Those are very rare cases. But we do know that that does happen. Okay? So, the, the Bible says, For this reason, a man and a woman shall leave the father and mother, and the two shall cleave together and be one flesh. A eunuch, Paul said, there are some who are eunuchs from birth, some who are made eunuchs, meaning they're castrated, and others who are eunuchs by choice, meaning that by faith you decide, I'm just not going to be married. I'm going to remain single forever. So that had nothing to do with the issue of being transgender. It had instead to do with the issue of whether or not you were going to remain single. So I hope that answers your question. Um, I, I think, yeah, there's plenty of definition, plenty of things that the Bible tells men to do and plenty of places where it says to men not to act like women and women not to act like men and for men not to treat other men sexually and for women not to treat other women sexually. And also that men would only um, act sexually appropriately within marriage and that women would only act appropriate sexually within marriage. So in other words, it's not just homosexuality we're fighting against, but homosexuality and fornication, having sex outside of marriage. For this reason, a man and a woman would leave the father and mother. The two would cling together. That's the act of sex. And they would become one flesh, which is what God desires and what God wants. As far as being a eunuch, a eunuch was someone who had been altered surgically back in the day. And um, Paul said some are made that by choice. Didn't mean they did it. They did that. It simply meant they chose not to be married. I'm going to stay single for the kingdom of God. All right. So um, you say I have an opinion, but love is the utmost importance. So it's okay if you don't answer. Well, I yeah, I'm going to answer, Talon. Um, yeah, love is the utmost importance, right? Um, now there are these three things, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these are love. But love also rejoices in the truth. And love isn't going to tell somebody something is true when it's not. The truth is that, and this is tragic, but suicide amongst transgenders is really high. It's a very difficult way of life. For most, certainly not all, but for most, they end up being incredibly isolated. 
it would be better for me if someone felt like they were feminine for them to choose to to still look masculine. I think that would be the better choice for them. Even if they felt feminine. Even if they felt more comfortable dressing feminine, it would be a much better life for them if they dress masculine. Because of the way the world's going to treat them. If that's if that's not going to happen and, and they're not going to give pay any attention to what God says in the Bible about not looking like the other gender, then go someplace where it's really accepted instead of finding yourself in a place where there's going to be all kinds of difficulties. I think this is one of the reasons that suicide is so high among it because they're just lonely and they're judged all the time because of, of what they've decided. So love is of the utmost importance, but if I love someone, I'm going to tell them the truth. And even though that causes problems, and yeah, I've told the truth and it's caused problems. So the idea that love would mean that you would accept them, love and acceptance aren't the same. Love means that you, well, I mean, we can read the description of love. Love um, never fails. Love is patient. Love is kind. We would always want to be patient and kind. Um, Love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not provoked, seeks no evil. Love rejoices in the truth, doesn't rejoice in iniquity. So all of those things are love. So the whole idea in the world that love is the the thing and that I should be driven by love, um, sometimes if, if, um, if a shepherd's watching a sheep, his love is for the sheep and he has to go after the shepherd. I mean, the, the, he has to go after the, uh, uh, after the wolf. And within the body of Christ, there have been those who, although lovingly, we've had to tell you can't come back anymore because it's obvious that you just want to prey on the sheep. And so he wouldn't let them come back. So the love answer here, I don't think is a real good one. Um, I'll, I'll take more follow-up, Talon, to, to, to let you know more on, on what I'm saying there. Okay, if you have any more of a follow-up. Um, we have a question from Jari. Jari says, follow up, if we were allowed to pray in school, then won't that give rise to other false teachings in church and false uh, theocracy created by government? Thanks. What are your thoughts? Uh, thank you, Jari. I appreciate that. Um, if we Let's go back to the way that the United States was created by those who created it. And they were not trying to create a Christian government but a government in which you had freedom to choose to worship in whatever way you wanted to worship. A freedom to be able to say whatever you wanted to say. So the problem where they came from was that the Church of England could control everything. And if you spoke against the Church of England, then they would come against you. It's kind of like today with cancel culture. You either say the things they say or they're going to cancel you. It's kind of like today, the way we tiptoe and sadly around certain words on YouTube so that the video doesn't end up being taken down, suppressed, or they don't cancel your channel. Instead of being able to say what we want to say. So someone ought to be able to believe what they want to believe. If they want to be a Jehovah Witness, they can be a Jehovah Witness. If I want to speak against them being a Jehovah Witness, I can speak against them being a Jehovah Witness. If they want to speak against me being a born-again Christian, they can speak against me being a born-again Christian. That's the country that we live in. 
That's at least what the the the, the our our, um, our founding fathers wanted. Um, I I don't think there's any problem with allowing anyone to pray in school. And I don't think there's a problem if someone in school decides that they're going to pray to the Mormon God, which is not obviously the Christian God. Or that's who they choose. And the idea was that we had the right or the freedom to be able to worship as we saw fit. We don't live in a theocracy. As far as I understand it, never did the church fathers, or never did the founding fathers, maybe the church fathers did, but the founding fathers never wanted us uh, to be dictating what someone had to be. They had the right or the freedom to be whatever they wanted to be. And that's exactly what we want to do as well. All right, we want to be those who, um, we want to be those who allow people to worship as they want to, but also have the freedom to be able to say that what they're doing is wrong. And other people have the freedom to say what we're doing is wrong. That's what freedom of speech and freedom of religion is all about. And I think they shouldn't make laws stopping people from praying in church, in schools, or from having prayer meetings, or from gathering together. Um, if that would lead to false teaching, then you deal with it the rest of the way that you deal with false teaching. Thank you, Jari. I appreciate it. We have a follow-up from Psychman says, or as I see it, David and the five-talent guy loved their masters. Cain and the one-talent guy did not demonstrate any. That is what is being taught here. Um, yeah, I don't know if I would say, Psychman, that a lack of love is what's being taught there. I think if I go back, you go back and you look at it and you're going to teach on it. You're, you're not going to go, the one talent guy buried it because he didn't love him. Because it's not in the text. You're inferring something on the text. And one of the first things you, you learn about exegesis of the Bible is that you don't infer on the text. You take out of the text what's there. And so the text says he was lazy. Um, he buried it. What were the terms that he used? Trying to remember where that's at now. We we went on a couple other places since then. Um, it says he was lazy. It says he. Um, I can't remember what the other term is used there, but yeah. So where where was that? Was that Matthew twenty Matthew twenty five? I think that was Matthew twenty five. Let me see if I can find the text again and pull it up, and we'll we'll see what we can get from the text. That's not saying that someone might not bury something because they don't love him, because that certainly could be possible. Um, that's not Matthew. Yeah, Matthew. Oh, there we go. Matthew 25. Oh, boy. What, where, where was it? Um, Parable of Talents. Here we go. Let me go ahead and get here. And um, receive five talents. Took it. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'll make you... Um, all right, Lord, he delivered him to tell him. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. And then finally, here we go. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. So finally here again, it says, then, um, then he who had received the one talent came and said, look, I knew you were you to be a hard man, reaping where you uh, had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered the seed. Now, that's just an excuse. He said later on, the Lord, the, his, his master says, Look, you knew these things, so you should at least, at least let me have gotten interest. He says, I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. 
But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. So he's wicked because he's lazy. He's wicked because he didn't want to do what his master wanted him to do. That's a wicked thing when you don't want to do what God wants you to do. It's a lazy thing. And many people are slothful. They're lazy. It's lazy. Um, you knew that I reap where I do not reap and gather where I do not rather and scatter seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. So you ought to at least have done that. So um, if I were, if I were going to teach this psych man, I would not teach it as a lack of love. Um, may, may very well be true. I'm just interested in, in not in not doing violence to the text, in not adding something to the text um, that is that is not being that is not there. Okay, and is that what you asked there? You said David um, loved their master, the one talent guy did not demonstrate any. Yeah, I I I would not teach it that way. Doesn't mean there isn't a lack of love there. There certainly could be, um, but I would not infer that from the text. You might say something like, "It is possible." that the guy that had the, the one talent didn't love him. You could say that, but if you're just strictly trying to infer from what the, the text says, then you're, that's what you're going to receive. He was wicked and he was lazy. Those were the two things. Okay, Rakaia has a question. Rakaia says, um, hi, pastor. Is there anything in scripture that indicates God may purposely leave some true believers in the tribulation period? Not, um, not that I know of, Rakaia. Um, we have the 144,000 from the nation of Israel who are sealed from each of the 12 tribes, and I take it that they are going to go around the world bringing the gospel, so God is not left without a witness. We also have the two witnesses, which seem to be Moses and Elijah, some believe Enoch and Elijah, others believe just two people that do the same things that Moses and Elijah did, uh, representing the law and the prophets. I think they are Moses and Elijah. I don't think they're just two people. I don't think God left anybody behind for any purposes. All those were taken out from the church and then people get saved when they're in the tribulation period. And God does use people who are being saved in the tribulation period. That's the 144,000. And then there's a large number who are, are killed out of the tribulation period. That we see rejoicing and praising God in heaven who have given their lives because of it. All right, well, Rokaya, so thank you. I don't, I can't think of any. And if I'm wrong, then let me know. All right. So uh, we have a follow-up. Sally says follow-up um, from Michelle, Michelle's questions. What are the circumstances in which situation should you leave a church? Okay. Um, I, again, would take leaving a church very seriously. Just like choosing a church, I take very seriously. Uh, I want to, if possible, be a solution to a problem. Um, that can mean difficulty. A lot of times pastors are insecure and when you bring up something to them that's wrong, then they flip out. Shouldn't, but they do. And um, uh, I would, if I were attending a church and I found out that the church was progressive, 
meaning they were embracing progressive theology. We spoke, this is a positive. It's not pejorative to churches. We see it as a pejorative. They see it as a positive. Um, I would find a new church. If I were attending a church that started teaching works over salvation, I'd find another church. If I were attending a church that uh, didn't teach the Bible or uh, I would choose a church if I could that systematically taught through books of the Bible. Um, Topic-driven churches, I mean, they could be great teachers, right? Um, Charles Swindoll doesn't necessarily go through books of the Bible. He does series and a good teacher. And I certainly, if I needed to go to a church, would go to Charles Swindoll's church. So I just want to be careful. I don't paint with too broad of a brush. I wouldn't go to a, um, a King James only church. <laughs> so I guess I could list all the churches that I wouldn't go to or that I, if, if I started to attend and they started doing that. But if, if they started really being lording over the flock, being hateful, uh, if there were those kind of things that were brought up, then I would address the situation and then leave the church. So I hope that helps your, your question. I think it should be very, very prayerful, Sally. I think it should be with much counsel. So talk to a lot of people about it and, and then make your decision. All right. So thank you. Um, so right now, Require, we're just taking one, one question, um, just because we, we, we've gotten more questions here recently, we want to make sure, um, that we can take either the questions or follow-ups to make things clear. Um, so, um, uh, I'll look towards your question, back at your question again, Wakaya, to see if we can use it for as a beginning on, on an, another Q&A. Or in another Q&A, then you can ask that question, all right? Um, but we have a question from Paul McGuire, our follow-up from Paul McGuire. Um, it was Ezekiel 18, 20, Boston Church of Christ made me memorize that one. All right, so Ezekiel 18, 20, and what was this? This was the, let me think, Ezekiel 18, 20. Oh, it was a question about um, whether or not children were born without a sin nature. So, 18... 20. Let me get there. All right. So let me see if I got this one right. Ezekiel. Let me, let me go back here and look. Um, yeah, Ezekiel 18, 20. I mean, Ezekiel 20 figures. Let me go to Ezekiel 18, 20. Huh. I have this verse highlighted in my Bible. So let's go ahead and look at it. Okay. Here we go. It says, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteous uh, of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So, yeah, I'm going to get rid of that. Okay. So, I, yes, okay, now I understand why they're saying that. I don't think that verse has anything to do at all with whether or not someone has a sin nature. It's saying, if a father goes out and murders someone, you're not going to blame the son. And if the son goes out and murders someone, you're not going to blame the father. That God, that's what those, that, that verse is saying. It has nothing to do. Um, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. 
So it goes either way. And you certainly wouldn't use that verse to say a father doesn't have a sin nature because everybody has a sin nature. So, yeah, I'm going to feel even more, even stronger in my answer to that, which was, no, babies are born with a sin nature. You don't have to teach a baby to say, um, to uh, bite another baby or to uh, start saying mine. You don't have to go, now, now, don't let anybody else have this. You just call it yours. Say it's mine. Um, we have a question from um, Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, hello, Pastor. I was very sad to hear the Charles Stanley passing. Yes, me too. About 90, 90 years old. A lot of great ministry. Listen to me now. Listen to me. Uh, I read kind words. Um, Skip Heitzig and Charles Swindoll shared about him. I was wondering if he had influenced you at all. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, thanks, Albert. I appreciate that. I've listened to a lot of teaching from Charles Stanley. Uh, he wasn't one of my go-to guys. Uh, I heard him on the radio a lot, especially back in the early days when you had, you know, Charles Swindoll, David Jeremiah, uh, John MacArthur, Charles Stanley. These were main names that were on the radio. You didn't have a lot of different guys that were on the radio <clears throat> like you may find today. Um, and I heard a lot from him. Um good, solid teacher, very few things that I would disagree with him about, and um, faithfully sought after God. Um, if I remember right, there was a divorce, but he remained single, and the board decided it wasn't his fault, and so he, he continued ministering, which I think is the right way to go, all right? So, um, yeah, thank you. Like I said, good, solid uh, Bible teacher, and uh, and he'll be missed. And um, I hope I'm preaching into my 90s. I don't know when, when he quit preaching. It wasn't that long ago. Um, I would love to be preaching into my 90s <clears throat> if that's what the Lord would have for me. Thank you, Albert. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, Talon, um, follow-up. Does gender have a purpose? Yes, it does. Uh, several purposes. Um, one of them would be either to father a child or to mother a child. A woman can carry a baby to term and deliver that baby. A man can't. A man uh, can father the child, which a mother cannot father the child. So God had a father and a mother in the purpose of a family. And so, yeah, gender has a purpose. And... Um, I'm not quite sure what else you would want from that. Um, yeah, gender has a purpose. Um, all right. The exception doesn't become a foundation of the rule. All right. So what do we got here? We got just a couple of minutes. Um, so, so does gender have a purpose? Doesn't look to me like you're blowing up the chat, Talon. All right. I think that this is a good, pertinent discussion to have today about transgender. So I don't, th um, I see, so Talon says, um, I'm not, I'm trying not to blow up the chat. And that's good. We appreciate that. But I don't think you are. Um, does gender have a purpose? So, um, like I said, we should be talking about this today. All right. Um, and I didn't, I didn't see a follow up on your question, Talon. So I'm not sure. Okay, 
So we have a question from Roland. This will be our last question for today. I'm going to get this chat log from Keith. Thank you, Keith, for uh, moderating today. And um, I'm going to look for a question to use at the beginning of our next Q&A. So if you, if you want to put in a question, go ahead. Or if you have, don't think that's lost forever. Um, you can always ask again in a future Q&A, and I will be choosing some of them. All right. So um, Roland says, there's a big move of casting out spirits and healing the sick. Does the Bible say that we can do this? Also, can Christians have evil spirits and demons dwelling in them? Are the scriptures that clearly state one or the other? Um, I think there's a big move and has always been a big move in the Pentecostal and Charismatic churches for deliverance. Deliverance through generational curses, deliverance through demonic spirits and oppression, deliverance from um, demons. Um, they want to do the same thing. They want to get you in a room. They want to lay hands on you. They want to pray for you. They want to cast the demon out. They want to get control. You know, um, you maybe maybe you gave in to some kind of a sin, and so that sin now has taken over. You need deliverance from that sin. So I think that's been around for a long time. I don't know where it's more today than other places. Maybe it is more in the charismatic movement now. Than, other, than it has been in the past. Um, does the Bible say we can do this? Well, Jesus said, and these signs shall accompany those who follow my name. They will cast out demons and they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. But there are also people who aren't healed. Even in the Bible, Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. Paul talked about his own infirmity rather than being healed himself. Um, it seems like the healings were closer. A lot of healings were closer to the apostles' times, and then they, they got less as it moved on a little bit. But people are still healed today. There's a book called um, The Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel. Another book called Miracles Today by Craig Keener, which talks about miracles, should encourage us. Um, can this Boy, this is, a question for, this is a question for another message, and maybe I'll break it down for that. Um, no, Christians cannot have evil spirits in them. Okay? I have the Spirit of God inside of me. If you're a Christian, genuine Christian, you have the Spirit of God inside of you. Doesn't mean the enemy is not attacking you. Doesn't mean you don't put on your armor. Doesn't mean he isn't trying to oppress you. The Bible says give no place to the enemy. So it doesn't mean that the enemy can't get in your into, into affecting your life. Okay? So there's there's two, two mistakes people make about demonic realm. One, ah, demons, don't worry about them. Two, ah, demons are everywhere. Watch out. They're, they're all over us. The balanced position is to say, what's happening? What's going on around me? Am I being attacked? Do I feel like I'm being attacked? How do I bind the enemy? What does it mean to bind the enemy? What does Jesus mean when he said the stronger than the strong man will bind the enemy? Boy, there's a lot of talking that we can do. I would love to do a live hot topic on spiritual warfare and then just take questions about spiritual warfare. I think that would be really, really helpful to do that. And maybe maybe we'll do that here pretty soon. Maybe we'll do that on a Monday afternoon uh, where we just do a live hot topic instead of a regular hot topic. And um, I'll talk about spiritual warfare and then we'll open up for questions and take questions as long as we can on spiritual warfare because I think this is a good one. Um, yeah, there's a lot of scriptures that clarify these things. Flee the, the devil and he'll, uh, I mean, flee temptation. Um, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Um, put on your armor and then stand and pray. If anyone is in Christ, the evil, you don't sin and the evil one cannot touch you. Um, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, so many more passages. 
that we could talk about what the Bible really has to say about spiritual warfare, Roland, and I think we could talk a lot more about it. Um, I may put together a live, we haven't done one in a long time, so a, a live hot topic um, where we ask the question, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And we'll talk about all aspects of spiritual warfare, and then we'll take questions about it, all right? So 504, I got to go. Uh, God of service in an hour. I'm talking about the two witnesses of Revelation, who they are, what they do, what happens to them. We're in Revelation chapter 11, verses uh, 3 through 13, I think. Uh, and a great section of scripture. These guys come out of nowhere. A lot for us to learn, but it's been good being able to spend some time here with you guys. And um, sorry that we didn't have a little more time. And I'm really glad that I didn't use my sounds, overuse my sounds, all right? But it has been good to be here with you, and I hope that the Lord really blesses you. Find yourself walking close with Jesus. Love you guys. Walk in the Spirit so you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord so that He gives you the desires of, of your heart. And abide in Christ and let His words abide in you so you can have whatever you ask, all right? God bless you guys. Love you. We will see you later on. I am out.